passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Pollock and Thurston. I am John Pollock, joined by the esteemed leader of the WrestleNomics empire and the winner of the post-wrestling G1 Climax Contest e-block. The man that was sweating bullets a few weeks ago as the G1 began and slowly making his climb from worst to first, Brandon Thurston. I thought it was all over, but but Gato had a good plan, and I should have trusted in him all along, and uh, I I did, I did win. I'm not sure what I've, I've won yet. I'm uh, I've uh, been been emailing the the post wrestling offices to see what my prize is, but I'm waiting to hear back soon. I'm sure I'll hear. I'm sure it'll be something exciting. Well, we have a a gift for all of the viewers out there because you have a front row seat to get all caught up on everything to do with antitrust lawsuits on today's show. And we have brought in uh, one of the uh, the best uh, the best minds when it comes to this. Uh, he is a lawyer out of British Columbia, uh, a man that I have uh, spoken with at length in the past. It's great to have him on, Pollock and Thurston. He is Eric McGraken, who is going to make sense of such a seismic story that has been going on for nearly nine years. Eric, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, John, thanks for having me on. I, I think you're trolling your audience by telling them antitrust law is something to be excited about. Oh, this uh, is. But I'll, I'll do my best to chat about this stuff. You know, I think Eric is on top of things, though, because uh, not only can you follow the man on X, but you can also follow Eric McGraken on TikTok. And I think that is the language to convey this with, Eric, because, I mean, your 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 two-minute breakdown of the antitrust suit, I don't know what it says about the people out there that that's about what they can stomach, but I think that that is a, a language that it does communicate with people in very, very complex stories that can be boiled down to what what is at the heart of the issue here. Yeah, and, and I promise I won't dance on TikTok if you do follow me there, sir. You folks are safe. Yeah, that's if the treble damages come through. That'll be that'll be the Eric McGregor uh, dance that we get on on TikTok. But I mean, for somebody that might be listening to this discussion and is aware of this antitrust suit, this goes all the way back to 2014. What would you say are is at the the heart of the matter on behalf of these fighters that have launched this suit? What are they? What are their main grievances that have been at the forefront of this lawsuit? Yeah. So, so what I'll start with is actually why last week was such big news, which sure. is uh, the, the, the lawsuit, the antitrust lawsuit is basically a handful of fighters suing the UFC saying uh, they've been up to some pretty nasty business practices and that's been harming fighters. But last week that lawsuit got certified. So it went from a handful of fighters suing the UFC to over 1,200 fighters suing the UFC. And and there's a bit of confusion about this. The way it works is there's a definition of who's now suing the UFC. Basically, everybody that fought from 2010 to 2017, 
with a few exceptions. But all those men and women are now automatically part of the lawsuit. They don't have to do a single thing. They don't have to call a lawyer. They don't have to file a document in court. They're now suing the UFC. And so in, in the simplest of terms, the UFC's risk just went through the roof because if they liable to a handful of fighters, they'd have to pay out some money, maybe a few hundred thousand dollars, maybe a couple million. But now the damages they're potentially on the hook for is in the billions. So if these 1,200 fighters succeed, the UFC could be looking at massive, massive damages. And that's why last week's news is such a big deal in combat sports. When it comes to um, the, the certification last week, I mean, that has been I think frustrating on some people's part is that, and maybe it kind of does underscore a lot of the maybe even unspoken power that is out there that so few fighters have been coming to the forefront of this. Um, so few that were attached to the initial lawsuit. We saw with the uh, Project Spearhead a number Project of years Spearhead, ago that, that they struggled to get fighters. And this is almost a way that these fighters, it's that these fighters, it's they don't have to do anything here to be part of this point. point. Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, like they don't have to put their name out publicly. They don't have to worry about the backlash that's coming from the UFC. So, so it's a really powerful tool that these fighters use, that their lawyers used as well. And it, it's major progress because very few lawsuits get this far. So it's not just some frivolous court filing. The, the judge basically went through all of the evidence, really analyzed it and said, look, it looks like the fighters have a legitimate beef with the UFC, and it looks like they have the evidence to back it up. So, you know, it's it, it's major progress here. So this thing's just gotten a lot more real. And, and when I look at the stock price of, of, of Endeavor, which is the parent company of UFC and, and of WWE, which is going to be, become merged with UFC pretty soon, it looks like you know, the stock price hasn't responded to this. But it, it sounds like they're they, they could be liable for millions. Is is the risk not that big, or or is just there a settlement more likely, or or is it or is the stock price just not accounting for for what's happening? Yeah, I don't know the answer, Brandon. I, I did the same thing, though. I actually looked to see if that if that stock was plummeting or not. When they structured their recent sales, I don't know who holds the bag on the liability, right? I don't know if the Fertitas hold the bag or if that transferred to the new company. I, I have no idea uh, who's responsible for the damages that might have to get paid out. Um, but, but to me, the big story isn't even the dollar figure, like billions. That's a scary number, mm -hmm. but the UFC could afford billions or they could at least get the financing to help them pay the billions. The bigger story, I think, in the lawsuit is that the fighters are seeking an injunction as well. So they're basically saying, look, you did all these nasty things that harmed fighters for all these years but you're still doing all these nasty things that are still harming fighters today. And so one of the remedies the fighters are seeking is an injunction stopping the UFC from using some of these heavy-handed business practices. And if you combine those two things, you get a judgment where you have to pay hundreds of millions or billions, plus you can't do what you've been doing all these years. That undoes the UFC's market stranglehold. That's going to make it easier for other promoters to compete with them, that's going to make fighter pay go through the roof. And if you're a stockholder thinking the story is going to just carry on forever the way it is, I don't think that's a risk-free thing. I think if you do hold stock, you can't be nearly as assured that the gravy train is going to carry on the way it has been all these years because this lawsuit's creating real risk for the company.
And as you said, that this since it's been certified, now 1,200 UFC fighters are, are included in this lawsuit. Is, is it true that like some of them can opt out? And, and if so, I was wondering if you know maybe there's pressure, especially with current fighters or fighters who want to fight for UFC in the future. Are is there like pressure on them to to opt out so that they maintain a good relationship with UFC? Yeah, you know that'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Like I don't know if there's pressure. Um, it's much easier to stay in than have to opt in, right? So so since they don't have to do anything, there's really no pressure on them in making a decision. But look at the class period, 2010 to 2017. Most of these men and women aren't in the UFC anymore. So I don't mm-hmm. know. I don't know what kind of pressure the UFC could put on them other than, hey, don't you want to stay in our good books for whatever, you know, the Hall of Fame or for the way we promote your old fights. But But I don't think the UFC really has leverage over the class that was certified. So I, I personally wouldn't expect seeing a whole bunch of people opting out. I think most fighters behind the scenes are very happy that they're part of this class action now and that they don't have to put their neck on the line publicly to do so. It would almost be a very interesting exercise if you were to have a cluster of fighters that are still eligible with the UFC in, in their careers opting out and supplying a reason as as to why would you be opting out of this? Like it almost again, like it backs up, you know, the the market power that a UFC has. That even if not uh, directly pressuring these fighters, there's an indirect pressure that you don't want to upset the industry leader by being attached to a lawsuit like this. Like to me, it would only strengthen the case if you saw even like five percent of fighters opt out of what what could be, you know, as you said, millions in the terms of damages that would trickle down to them. Yeah, that there's really no upside to a fighter opting out of this lawsuit. I, again, I'd be I'd be surprised. I mean, you know, crazy stuff happens in the world, and MMA is no exception. So maybe the odd person here and there might opt out and might make a show of it. But but I don't think there's going to be any floodgates opening of fighters leaving the lawsuit, and and that really speaks for itself, right? Even though fighters don't want to publicly organize, they've been reluctant to do that. The fact that all of them are more than happy to be part of this lawsuit, I think, speaks volumes about fighters' real feelings about how they've been treated by the industry over the years. And what have you observed of the evolution of UFC fighter contracts during the the period of this suit? The main one that comes to mind is Francis Ngannou and his ability to get out of his UFC contract as UFC heavyweight champion. Would you like what has what have been the reactionary uh, procedures from the UFC in the wake of this suit over the last number of years? Yeah, so so you know these fighters deserve a lot of credit because that that seemed to be one of the UFC's responses to it as they they loosened up their contracts, right? They had that hard sunset clause, and Francis took advantage of it. He had that five year sunset clause, and and he's a free agent. UFC wasn't happy about him being a free agent, and I understand they've tightened up their contracts a little bit more. They they don't want more Francis's coming out of the woodworks. They want to continue to control. These Nor class action lawsuits uh, do they want to say, like, isn't that part of the language, too, that you cannot engage in a class action lawsuit as well? Like they are trying to um, just hole up this this potential of any more suits that would arrive out of the next generation of fighters. Yeah, that's right. And, and they want the fighters to take them to arbitration instead of going to court and don't participate in the class action and the arbitration is going to cost you a whole bunch of money up front. So good luck doing that. And the arbitration is behind the scenes. So you don't get these kinds of 
court judgments being publicly released that all of a sudden shine light on the UFCs. So they've circled the wagons, right? They're doing all the things they do as a business to try to minimize their risk, uh, you know, moving forward. So, so it's a, you know, it's an ongoing story in terms of this antitrust suit, what it's achieving and how the UFC is responding to it. And with the UFC merging with WWE, I mean, Endeavor said that it's going to be finalized. They expect mid to late September. And the, the thing that we've heard from both companies is that they're just going through regulatory approval. I, I would think WWE is involved in an antitrust lawsuit as well with MLW. Uh, with, with both of those companies involved in antitr- antitrust lawsuits, I, I would think just as a, a lay observer, like wouldn't, wouldn't, you know, the SEC or other government organizations be, be looking at these two companies merging and saying, Hey, they're both involved in antitrust lawsuits and maybe that would be a big hurdle, but apparently not. They're, they're saying it's going to be finished in about a month. Yeah, you know, like, like people will say back when the UFC acquired Strike Force that, that that should have been a monopolistic concern. And I know some regulators looked at it, but it didn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. And this judge has a real problem with that. Like this judge basically says, hey, that's one of the things the UFC did that really put them in this monopsony position that they enjoy. And I agree. Now, now you look at the WWE merger, it's more power in that sports entertainment world with some crossover between those companies. But, you know, my joke was these, these these companies are merging just in time to find out they both might be illegal monopsonies as well. So so I don't know if the federal government is going to stop it from happening, but uh, the federal judiciary might. There might be there might be more legs to the WWE lawsuit now that this UFC lawsuit has gone as far as it has. One of the excerpts from uh, Judge uh, Bulware's ruling last week included this uh, this example. Uh, the record establishes that undermining competitors was important to Zufa leadership and an essential part of its strategy to establish market dominance. This is evidence, for example, in a February 2014 text message discussion between Mr. Dana White and Mr. Lorenzo Fertitta regarding re-signing fighter Gilbert Melendez. Melendez's contract with Zufa was ending, and he had come to an agreement with competitor Bellator. Regarding that contract, Fertitta texted White, quote, we got to keep taking these fuckers oxygen till they tap out. We have sacrificed too much to let anyone get traction now, end quote. At his, dispo- at his deposition, Mr. Lorenzo Fertitta confirmed that the term fuckers referred to Bellator, <laughs> while the oxygen referred to fighters Gilbert Melendez and another fighter, Eddie Alvarez, both of which Bellator was attempting to recruit. So appreciate the context that Lorenzo Fertitta put that into. The kind of kind of high comedy that only legal stories can provide. Yes. I mean, you have gone. Oh, through yeah. This. I love I love I love judges having to read that kind of, you know, real world business talk and then and then sort of explain it to everybody that's reading it. But, yeah, that's there's a hundred nuggets like that. If you read through this. Right. Like, I know, oh, yeah. I know legal text is boring as can be. But if you could sort of power through all of the legalities of it, the evidence that's highlighted here is just like, it's just nuts. And John, I, I just got off another podcast talking about this, but the one thing that jumped out at me more than anything is just what a one-sided beatdown this ruling was. Like, like the judge wasn't like, well, you know, maybe you meet it. It's pretty close. The judge was like, this is overwhelmingly a case that's made out in terms of the standards you have to meet. It, it, it was just a, just a one-sided ass kicking for the fighters here. And I don't know how the UFC perceived their risk in this case, but I would think the judge's strong ruling should be a wake up call to them. Like I, 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 they said they're going to appeal. I imagine they will the certification ruling, assuming that goes nowhere. I would think the UFC would be coming to the negotiation table from there because I don't, 
I don't know if they want to leave it in the hands of a jury after a judge sees it as such a one-sided case. Yeah, it's, it, it, it would seem to me that that is, that becomes much more of a reality once, you know, the, this appeal process that again, if you go through these 85 pages, like it's, it's a pretty damning uh, document when it comes to the business practices of, of the UFC. And then once we're getting to the table, I mean, are like for, for this group, like they are nine years into this. Like, do you feel that like a settlement is inevitable in this kind of a situation can you see this going further beyond that i mean these are you know these these are very very deep waters that this group has been swimming into over the last nine years is a settlement the most realistic outcome you can look at when it gets to like this level of uh, those deep waters yeah so, so i've been suing people for 20 years and i can tell you a settlement is almost always something worth exploring right because litigation is risky even if you think you got it in the bag you don't always have it in the bag juries are unpredictable there's a famous uh, nfl uh antitrust lawsuit that went to jury trial years ago and the jury said yep nfl you guys did some dirty dirty stuff we award the athletes one dollar yes and antitrust law triples the damages so the nfl had to pay three cool dollars to to those athletes so you never know what a jury's going to do with this uh but but yeah i would think that the ufc now has real incentive to come to the table i have no inside knowledge about the fighters involved or what their views are or what they want but i would personally believe they mean what they say when they're looking not just for money but they're looking for some structural change in how the UFC does business. Otherwise, in 10 years, it's going to be the same old story all over again, which is fighters are, are you know, receiving crumbs in terms of pennies on the dollar. And the UFC is ever strengthening their position in the sport. Like, like this lawsuit ends with evidence from years ago. But look at now what the UFC is doing with the feeder leagues, like with the Dana White Contender Series. So you get the, the regional promoters put their best guy, not even to the UFC, but now just to that in-between Dana White contender series that they own. And then they gatekeep from there. So they've got they've got that market down, I mean, all the way to the lowest levels in the United States and in Canada to some extent. So, so I think the fighters are looking for change. I imagine there's going to be something more than just dollars at play in the negotiating room. And that'd be, you know, that'd be a fun room to be in just to see if they could bridge that gap. As we uh, wind things down here, when you are, I know you're not uh, maybe as focused as much on the, the WWE side of, of things, but do you feel that the outcome of this suit is going to be at all mirrored on, you know, it's such a very, it's a very similar business setup between the UFC and WWE, very, very similar businesses outside of one being pro wrestling and one being mixed martial arts, that it's going to, a lot of eyes from the pro wrestling side of things are watching the outcome of this suit because you could argue WWE has even more restrictions when it comes to their course of business and, and the lack of freedom that professional wrestlers enjoy in that company. Yeah. And and so I do have to confess to your uh, audience. I don't follow the business side of wrestling nearly as much, but I, I think you're right. The UFC built their empire by basically borrowing the business practices of the WWE. There's no secret there, right? These contracts are modeled after wrestling contracts. And the UFC ended up, you know, rocketing into this real position of, of, 
you know, basically a market monopoly. And the WWE enjoys that as well. I don't know the numbers nearly as well, but in terms of in terms of talent wrapped up and in terms of revenue generated, do they make similar money to to Zufa and the UFC? Like like the UFC basically it's, makes it's probably a smaller percentage. Smaller. Yeah, yeah. Th- th- there's a little more competition there in terms of um, where the dollars are going, or is it is it in the ballpark? I, I would think it's is this, with WWE made in 2022 about. $1.3 billion in revenue. I And they have maybe 200 wrestlers under contract. I would think it's got to be under 10% of, of the revenue that's going to talent. Right. Yeah. And, and in terms of competitors to WWE, how much of the market do those guys have sewn up in terms of dollars generated compared to WWE? Like are and they a behemoth? In, in their defense. So AEW is number two and they, they probably generated about a hundred million dollars in revenue in the same year. So that's like less than a 10th. And but there is competition between AEW and WWE for talent for sure. Yeah, yeah, you know that ten to one sort of market dominance is you know kind of what comes into play. Like, like what the court's saying is here is hey UFC, you have so much power, you could just unilaterally set the prices for these athletes, right? Like you control, you you feed them in, you lock them in. They're not accessing free agency, and you control their careers. And if WWE is doing it on a similar model, getting the talent in, making it very difficult to have free agency and and real fair market prices, and they have that kind of dominance in the market, they could be looking at a similar as you know as this lawsuit. So I think I think those stories are probably um, on on somewhat parallel paths. My last question for you, Eric. Just given your own experience, I know this is probably just like a, a, a an estimate, but. It, being at it was it was such a solid ruling last week. The UFC they we assume they will appeal this. Is that going to be a, a prolonged process, or do you feel that that could be uh, sped along, or is that sort of it, it's just too hard to look at a timeline here of the, the appeal process? Because I, I would imagine like we could still be looking at years here uh, attached to this case. Yeah. Yeah, if you asked me eight years ago to predict how long this lawsuit would have taken, I, I wouldn't have said it'd still be kicking around right now and certainly not as early as it is, right? Like like we just got certification last week in this judgment. Um but yeah the, the appeal process won't take nearly as long as the ruling for certification. Like this judge basically said he was going to certify two and a half years ago and then nothing happened. That was an unusual delay. These lawsuits are slow at the best of times, but there's been antitrust lawsuits in the states that went from beginning all the way to trial in the time this one was just waiting for certification. So I don't think you're going to be looking at the kind of delay it's had in the past, but who the hell knows is the short answer. If I had to guess, you're probably looking at a couple of years before this thing gets in front of a jury. Well, we uh, we hope, Eric, that uh, you will be uh, running your TikTok and hopefully can come back on in, in, in the years to come. We really appreciate, uh, you know, reporters such as yourself, John Nash, have been at the forefront of conveying a lot of this. Uh, and, and that's, this is my real final question. Have you sensed among... Uh, fans of the sport that there's more of an of an appetite for this story that fighter pay has grown as a concern i mean it's anecdotal for me but it seems to be it's certainly permeated to a a larger level just the awareness and the coverage but it's still it's it's a story that sometimes gets um you know it's it's not as sexy as a the latest uh exploits of a conor mcgregor but it does feel like fighter pay is becoming more of a consistent news item that people are aware of now and the treatment some of these fighters are under yeah so 
boy, it's, it's tough to take the pulse of the public on it. Like I, I live in a bit of a bubble in that, I, you know, like who the hell follows a lawyer on Twitter? Like my 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 world at large isn't everybody else's world at large, and the UFC does such a good job getting their talking points out, right? Like if you don't like it, don't sign the contract. Nobody has a gun to their head. And you have echelons of fans just repeating this stuff. But what I what I do think I've seen, just because it, it's not just, oh, some fighters complaining. Now that there's, you know, real things to point to and some of these sound bites are in the media, I, I have seen some fans come around saying, boy, I thought this stuff was frivolous. But when the judge puts it that way, that makes a bit of sense to me. So, you know, I think I think there is a little more sympathy for fighters, but it's always going to be politically divisive, right? You're going to have the people that love the promotion and, you know, it's like every it's like every strike in major league sports. Oh, it's billionaires against millionaires. I don't sympathize for any of them. You get that kind of a dialogue coming. But, yeah, I think I think now compared to eight years ago when this was launched, there's probably more sympathy to the fighters cause than there was than there was a decade ago. You can follow all of Eric's work at CombatSportsLaw.com as well. Eric McGraken on X slash Twitter and, of course, on TikTok as well. So, Eric, uh, I want to thank you so much for for joining us and uh, bringing everyone up to speed. This is a super important story, and it was uh, it was a major step forward last week that we might look back on years from now as a, uh, as a turning point in this entire case. Yeah, no, thank you guys uh, for having me on in any time. Uh, appreciate you guys covering it because it is important, and, and glad you guys are giving it attention. Thanks a lot, Eric. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Eric. Cheers. This post-wrestling podcast is brought to you by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Financial literacy can be daunting, but it's one of the most valuable things you can equip yourself with. On NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast, their trusted financial journalists offer easily digestible, conversational discussions on topics like balancing your portfolio. If you think an ETF is one of Cena's five moves of doom, this show might be for you. Planning for your tax bills this April, so you don't have to worry about a visit from Erwin R. Scheister. And putting away more money for retirement, because unlike most wrestlers at the end of their careers, most of us should only plan on retiring once. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. Eric McGregor and everyone catching us up on the UFC antitrust suit, and I think it, it dovetails very much, Brandon, as you mentioned, into the WWE antitrust suit that MLW has filed. And there was just a response this week by WWE where cover your ears. They did admit that pro wrestling is predetermined. They did. I, if, if I were uh, reporting on this for a mainstream news outlet, I, that, that stood out to me as the thing that I would, you know, write about first, of course. Yes. Um, I, I went through this. This is uh, not as lengthy as the, uh, the as the UFC um, r- ruling, but nonetheless, uh, it was WWE essentially um, admitting to things ranging from pro wrestling being predetermined that they are known as a form of sports entertainment to the fact that they uh, allowed Jerry McDivitt to be interviewed on Dark Side of the Ring. And then uh, no, numbered at like number 100, they did note. Uh, and by the way, Stephanie did talk to a 2B executive. The they night they did admit to being a professional wrestling organization, too, which I also thought was noteworthy. That's right. That's right. Clearly, someone is on a medical <laughs> leave right now, and that did not yes. cross his desk. Um, but yes, this was. Why don't you explain what is significant about the date, August 9th, two thousand twenty-one, and why Stephanie McMahon speaking a two B, to a two B executive on that date is worth being noted in this lawsuit? So, according to MLW, they were on the eve of announcing a new media deal with Tubi to air MLW programming on Tubi. And what's Tubi? Tubi is a Fox-owned 
fast streaming service. So it is a free ad supported streaming television service that anybody in the United States, I don't know uh, what the availability is internationally, but anybody in the United States can watch it for free. It's just got ads on it that's generating revenue for it. And they were going to be on Tubi. They were going to announce it according to MLW the next day. Um, and I guess several media outlets kind of given the heads up, I guess, some kind of embargoed, um, I, I, for transparency, I, I, I was not one of those, uh, media, but it, it sounds like some were like aware that this was going to be announced on August the 10th. So this was like, this is as, as late as an 11th hour, uh, killer on a deal as you could possibly get. This phone call comes and then Tubi pulls out the night before the press releases to go out. Yeah, and, and according, according to MLW, Stephanie McMahon, who was working for WB at the time, uh, called a 2B executive and pressured the 2B executive, pressured 2B to not do the deal, to kill the deal because of the relationship between Fox and WB, obviously over SmackDown. Um, and WB denies there's a, a number of allegations. We're not even, you know, getting to the tip of the iceberg on the allegations that are in MLW's complaint, but that's one of them that they interfered with this deal that MLW was going to make. Um, and WB, answered all of these allegations, largely denying everything, but did admit that Stephanie McMahon spoke with a 2B executive on that day. It you know denies that she pressured a 2B executive to kill the deal, but admitting that, that, that there, there was a conversation there. Yeah, which would naturally extend to... No, it, so it would be very about. hard to uh, discredit that the call took place, but I guess the next follow-up is, can it be proven what was said on the call. And if that's just, I mean, that, that becomes like the next step of, you know, one side is going to allege one thing and one side is probably going to deny that. It'd be interesting to know. I mean, I could, I'm just trying to imagine what, what the motivation would have been for, for Stephanie to call other than, other than to kill the deal. I mean, like maybe, maybe she's a loyal fusion viewer and she just called and said, she's excited. You know, I don't know about the long-term booking of fusion. It's, I'm just, just my two cents. I'm not a big fan of the show and maybe to be realized, you know what? I, I don't know about Salix Hammerstone. I don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe this is the wrong move for us. Maybe, maybe we should just, uh, take into consideration that this is, uh, not, not the program we want to get involved with, not because of any pressure, just because of, uh, Stephanie McMahon just casually sharing her thoughts on the program. Right. And, and maybe W has an ex- exclusivity agreement with Fox as that's part of the SmackDown deal, as apparently they do. And that this is MLW alleges this, which apparently they do with NBC Universal, which is what prevented Reels from broadcasting the MLW show on Peacock when, cause Reels is just a channel that you can watch on Peacock. But while MLW Fusion was airing a few months ago, uh, it was blacked out. So apparently there's an exclusivity agreement between NBC Universal. And WWE, now WWE content does live on Peacock. Uh, so maybe it's just particular to Peacock. I don't know, but, but maybe there's some sort of agreement in the contract between WWE and Fox that makes WWE feel like, Hey, Fox shouldn't have any association with any other wrestling company, uh, but WWE. Yeah. And again, this is why I feel that whether you are following the UFC suit or this MLW lawsuit against WWE, there's so much that intertwines. And if you read this ruling from a uh, judge Bullware on the, on the UFC side of things, it's like, it's outlined very clearly. It is not illegal to have a monopoly, but it is how you are able to gain that market share and dominate the market. If you are doing uh anti-competitive acts, which I mean, that is for a judge to decipher if these acts are, 
constitute illegal activity. Um, but again, like this is stuff that, you know, if, if can be proven, um, what, what are the legalities of having exclusivity or the idea that you can have that you, you can stifle other promotions from even getting onto a platform. And that's what the plaintiffs are going to be arguing in, in both of these cases about the acts that are being, it's not a question as to the market share that these companies have. It is how they have gotten to that and been able to, have they been able to stifle any competitors from even getting off the ground and having a fair chance to be a worthy competitor. And, and I think MLW's argument, to be clear, would be that it, it doesn't matter whether there might be a, an agreement between Fox and WWE and between WWE and NBCU to have exclusivity uh, on wrestling towards WWE. That doesn't necessarily mean it's not supporting their case that such an agreement exists because it would be in their view, anti-competitive. Um, but the discovery, the discovery is ongoing now um, because we saw that filing from Live Nation objecting to MLW's subpoena for records uh, you know, related to events. So discovery is happening, apparently. Yes. So, um, yeah, discovery is the next uh, chapter in this, which God knows, uh, Brandon will be a refreshing court listener and we will uh, – we will see what it what it's There's email alerts, so I don't need to refresh it. Okay, you're you're at the forefront of of all things, so we we will follow that. And I mean, that is, it's through this process that we have learned more about the UFC business through this suit than we would have ever known. Like the percentages that are going out to fighters, what the percentages of other competitors were going out. I mean, this was a real expose on the UFC's business, where a lot of theories were, you know, put into. Um, much clearer view when it comes to all of these documents that ended up coming out and the reporting of those that were following this case going back almost nine years. We'll move on uh, because uh, WWE, the market leader, they are putting uh, tickets on sale this week for WrestleMania 40 at Lincoln Financial Field in Philadelphia. Uh, the pre-sale is going on and along with uh, then the general on sale. This is two nights at uh, Lincoln Financial Field, April 6th and 7th, I believe. And it's a super hot product at the moment, Brandon. And I mean, what are some of your expectations for like, I, I see this being a very, very hot ticket, maybe the hottest WrestleMania demand we have seen in several years. Do you think they're hotter now than they were when WrestleMania tickets went on sale for this year's WrestleMania? I think it's kind of similar, but maybe it's a little bit higher. Uh, And I think the numbers are about 65 each night distributed. I could look at the, the poll star number and what it was sold, but I expect it to be at least as good as, as this year. Do you think it's going to be hotter? I think it's going to be more this, this year. It's, I just feel just where we, we have seen uh, live event attendance going. And overall, I think people also have a, even a clearer view of sort of like the big picture direction around Roman Reigns and Cody. Um, but yeah, I, I would say at minimum comparable to LA that you're going to have for, Philadelphia next year. So I'm very interested to see how well uh, they get off to uh, uh, ticket sales this week. Yeah, 67 both nights, uh, over 67 both nights for tickets distributed and sold was 63 and 64. So, yeah. Are you going? Are you gonna, are you, do you have plans to go to Philadelphia? I was informed this week um, by Mr. Waiting that we are going. And, uh, really? Oh. He, has, he, has, he has booked a um, uh, air. Uh, lodging for us i will i will okay. say so it i have turns also out, reserved like, a hotel yes yes it's expensive um, to fly to philadelphia for some reason though for me anyway i'm not toronto it? yeah 
Yeah, I've I've not looked at, at flight uh, prices yet. If if there's a great deal to be had, we're we're more than happy to uh, have you up here to Toronto, and we can we can fly out. You can outsmart the airline industry uh, okay. as well. But that will be uh, coming up next April, and and all the subsequent events uh, in April. It'll be interesting as well, uh, Brandon. This is more in your wheelhouse on like the independent scene that. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Like in Pennsylvania, the promoter needs a license to be able to run in the state. And I'm yes. thinking there's there's going to be a lot of um, crossover of shows in New Jersey. Like I would imagine like GCW, like they don't run in Pennsylvania at all. They um, don't. I could see them just staying put in New Jersey, in Atlantic City, um, which is not too far of a distance to go if you're it's not Pennsylvania, not a very expensive state to, to be licensed in relative to New York. In, in my experience, you know, it's, it's a, you have to pay a promoter's fee and yeah, I think you have to have a bond, but there's, there aren't the hurdles to jump over that, that there are in some other states. Yeah. I guess it's just the question of if like a GCW, like why don't they ever run in Philadelphia? It's like, is it enough of a deterrent for people that they will just uh, run elsewhere? And also just the available venues. Like you can only put so many holds on the 2300 arena. And I don't know how many similar sized venues there are to an arena like that, that are, uh, going to be available for your um, many, many independent companies that I'm sure will be descending on Philadelphia. Right. And probably all those same independent companies praying that they don't have to uh, board a flight to London to book cards to next year. That would be very cost prohibitive, I would imagine, for many, many companies. Because there's no the, – the rumor is maybe Minneapolis, maybe Minnesota for, for the year after that. But I would think if, if London's going to get it, I would think it would not be the following year. 2026 but maybe in 2027 at the earliest well john cena might have to are you saying he might have to do another promo i, I guess that there that was way ahead and i i think it was just you know it's a it's a leverage even if london london doesn't get it there's others that maybe feel urgency to bid more strongly who knows yeah obviously we're not we're not in london but that seemed to be uh, if the idea was to create like such a rabid demand for wrestlemania i don't see like that that wave really extended too much out of money in the bank other than for maybe a 24 hour period. And then it was okay. Well, we're moving on. Yeah. yeah. I think Nikon booked that segment all in according to Russell ticks. They have now surpassed 80,000 tickets, uh, putting it into the, however you want to decipher the, uh, the, the records of, uh, of most uh, tickets distributed uh, to a, to a show. And so they are on their way to, the turnstile count of WrestleMania 32, which they inevitably will pass uh, probably this week. They have to hit 80,709. Did I get it, Brandon? Uh, you're probably right. I, d- I did a chart here showing if we just assume a linear trend, which I imagine it's going to accelerate in the final days before, but they're on track to hit 83,000 in distributed and in terms of paid, and this is according to WrestleTix estimates only. But uh, in terms of paid, they're on track to hit at least, seven, I would say, 76,000 paid. But again, you might expect acceleration in, in the final days before the show. So at this point, um, in the lead up to All In, um, you know, there's been a, a lot of discussion about the promotion of this event, how the card is coming together. And I would say, like, it's, it's been the most criticized promotion of an event since maybe Forbidden Door last year. And I was thinking this out this week that, you know, Forbidden Door of last year, this is where they were hit with the injuries to CM Punk, uh, to Brian Danielson. And despite all of the booking changes and kind of a lackluster buildup, Forbidden Door performed very well. 
And then we fast forward to this year's Forbidden Door, and you had the two big matches on top with Omega and Osprey and Danielson and Okada. And it was generally, I would say, like a pretty positive buildup in terms of just what the fan interest was going into that show. So you had differing viewpoints of the promotion, and yet both shows did relatively in the same ballpark in terms of buys. So my question to you, Brandon, is how how important I think is Tony it? gave us the impression that this year's Forbidden Door outpaced it that beat last year's Forbidden Door. Right. So last year was around one, but not huge. Not a huge difference. Yeah. So let's let's say give or take, you know, five to ten percent. It was above yeah. last year. How important is the that four week period in the lead up to a pay per view, specific to an AEW audience? Like, do you think it's a major determining factor when it comes to someone buying a show such as All In? Like, this has been I've seen a lot of criticism for yeah. this show, and yet I think this is going to be a very successful show uh, next week. Live event, of course it is, but let's just keep it at like the pay-per-view level. Um, like what are your expectations just going into the show and what sort of the reaction you sense for the, I, th- I think it makes an incremental difference. I think when you have a show that's got Okada and Brian Danielson on top and, and Osprey and Omega on top versus the forbidden door show of the prior year, which I'm struggling to remember what the, what the matches were Tanahashi and Moxley and like a four way for, with Okada in it. Um, I think that makes an incremental difference. I think because you're, you're just so far down in the funnel that there's not a lot of movement. It's sort of like the, the thing that, that people say to dismiss hardcore wrestling fans in general, that it's not going to make a big difference on, on that level. When, when it comes to asking people to spend $50, the unusual factors here are that you have another pay-per-view the following week. Um, and this is going to be a historic show. You know, whatever the attendance is, it's going to be a historic show. I think there's something far bigger, though, at stake uh, in in terms of AEW being able to create a brand that is the WrestleMania brand. Um, but it really has to be a really well received show. And the, the criticism that I think is valid is that this should have been a, a monstrously promoted show. But it's yeah. just it's just another show, another big show. But it's an, just another pay per view. Yeah, and and don't get me wrong, I think that there certainly been. Um, fumbles here in this in this lead up where i think that to me the biggest drawing aspect of this show is the the idea of this show much like it was the idea of the first all in the idea of roh and new japan running msg exactly it's like you're buying something that is going to be historically significant and unlike the first all in you have the benefit of of four hours, uh, five hours if you include rampage of national television to promote this and uh super roster that you have access to and and here we are and there is i think a expectation level that people feel has either not been met or it's just has not capitalized to the degree that you feel this is going to be the greatest show in AEW history the biggest show in AEW history beyond the fact that it is numerically going to be the most uh attended but what yes. would you what would you pay like i would say or like if this show um i would say like if it's not the second most bought pay-per-view. I don't think this is going to hit CM Punk first pay-per-view numbers. Um, I would say if it's not like the second most purchased event, I mean, do you look at this as like not reaching its potential? Like this, this should be as big, uh, if not bigger than the largest AEW pay-per-view that they have done. And I can't I say for sure that they will be, be anywhere near, near that. Um, I'm looking at what the other, because we know that the all out 2021 pay-per-view that did 215 over over 200,000 buys we can say. I have it at 215. Um 
one. And, and I agree. I don't, I don't see this show doing that, that number, um, unless we're in for just a real surprise of people that just want to see this really significant big stadium show. Um, but I feel like that's what this show should be. Like this should be the show. So 175 is, is the second biggest. That's Revolution 2022. I don't think it's coming anywhere near that. Then I, I'd be disappointed with that if it doesn't hit 175. Yeah. I mean, you can still make a big brand. I mean, if you go back to WrestleMania 13, had a disappointing number and, and all that in, in its time. And I think it might, might have underperformed the others. As, you know, it's a time when the WrestleMania brand was pretty weak. You know, it's the weakest it's, it had been in its history. And you can always rekindle that brand later. But what better time to do it than in front of whatever the number is, 80,000 people and, and, and all the, the media power that, that goes with that and marketing power that you can get out of that. Um, I, I wanted to, to look at too, um, if we can, the, uh, what, what, what is the number that it has to hit? And to be clear, I've heard people talk about this could be the biggest show of all time and in, including in terms of gate, it, it will not be the biggest no. show nearly in terms of not gate. gate. The, the biggest show ever in terms of gate is WrestleMania 32, $17 million at the time. And uh, if you put it up to, um, to today's dollars, it's like $20 million today. So it's not going to come anywhere near that. There's a, a like every WrestleMania show of modern history. You, you don't see a last minute surge and $10 million just falls into their lap. You're, that, that's not going to happen. <laughs> no, I was th- talking to Josh Nason yesterday. Maybe Tony Khan can sell million dollar seats and he can b- beat it that way. Uh, those uh, Ticketmaster platinum seats. Um, but it, in, in terms of attendance, it could be, but what is the record that they have to break? Like, what is your opinion on what is, what is the record? What's the most attended show ever? I guess, excluding the North Korea shows, what is the most attended show besides those? And what is the number that it, that it has to be? Yeah. So, I mean, you can go back yeah. to last week's show yeah, with David Bixen Span and we, will, uh, <laughs> we have about a 40 minute dissection of WrestleMania three. So that is anyone's interpretation of 78, five to what's our ceiling for WrestleMania three, uh, 88 is sort of the highest people could envision that they, they fit in there. Um, yeah, I think I, most. I, I think most accept seventy-eight-five as the figure for WrestleMania three. Whether that can be disputed, there's been a least, lot of, right. of research that has gone into that. Um, so beyond that, um, like I, I think if you surpass WrestleMania thirty-two, um, what, what, what's the Jim Londis figure? Do we do we do we have that? That's an unverified number. I just sort of throw my hands up and say modern history. Okay, I, I'm not going to go back to like photos from from the 50s and prior you know yeah we're not we're not going to get out the uh the magnifying glasses for uh for jim londis uh, and, and his uh, drawing abilities so if we put that like realistically i think if, if they top the wrestlemania 32 number i think this is going to generally be accepted as the and in terms of distributed they definitely will and distributed they will and then paid like you've done this the range is as high as like 85 and change yeah. That- so what I'm, what I have on the on the screen here for people watching in video is this is basically my belief and opinion. Nobody else is necessarily, but like as of today, <laughs> um, so eighty thousand seven hundred nine is WrestleMania thirty two, and I think the paid is somewhere between seventy six and eighty three. It could be wider, but to, I'll 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 you know relieve everybody from hearing a bunch of math. But the the range is a little bit wider, but it's a little bit more likely that that the range is closer to the median. So it's somewhere between I think seventy six and eighty three thousand paid. Um, all in is at about seventy four thousand paid right now. Um, it's probably going to get get into that range, right? Only two thousand more to get in that range. Um, 
and I think so. I've been doing, you know, I've been doing the last couple of days is going through. Uh, I, I haven't haven't briefed you on this. That I was going to go through this, but let's see. Do I have it in here? Um, and by the way, if we include Saudi Arabia in the gate thing, <laughs> Saudi Arabia would be fifty million dollars, you know, more than doubling everybody else. But I've been going through the Silverdome stuff, and so Silverdome official attendance is eighty thousand three hundred and eleven. Right, that's the official attendance, official capacity. Excuse me. Hmm. Um, and so there, there's the big big photo. But and and you know, you, you were talking last week about. Let's just count the heads. And I've said, you know, even though it is a high res photo, you zoom in. I don't know that you can really, in any portion of this photo, distinguish people really reliably. What, what you, if we found this dude who was in the last row? I want him. Yeah, I want to talk to him. Can like we this guy who believed that someone can see me and would be part of this iconic photo. This, this, this looks like the head count guy. Yes, yes. Uh, what, what is, I want to know his opinion about how many people were, were in this stadium. Um, but if you look at the photos of the demolition of the Silverdome in 2017, look uh, at this dump. You can. Oh, it looks terrible, doesn't it? <laughs> but but I look think at that, the before and after of the Silverdome. <laughs> man, this is man. WWF came to town and they got out. <laughs> they ruined it. Um, but I, there's some high res photos of, that people took during the demolition itself, and you can zoom in. And, and I think more clearly, it's not super mm. high res, but more clearly you can count the seats. So this is what I've been doing in the last couple of days is, okay, I got the, the ticket map out and I basically went in, into these sections and zoomed in and count, counted samples. I didn't count every seat in the stadium, but I counted samples from each section in the 100 level, the 200 level, the 300 level. I got all these samples together, right? And I, then, then I did the math and I like measured on this, on the seating map, what, you know, what the area is of each one of these sections and extrapolated on onto that the attendance. And what I got is, you know, I got like seventy thousand for this entire silver dome in terms of the the football capacity. I didn't consider anything on the floor. I didn't try to, to do do any of that, right? That that photo of the demolition is just the NFL setup. Seventy thousand uh, is the grand total for a football setup, which would certainly give you credence towards closer to the seventy eight five figure as maybe right. <laughs> that almost feels ambitious that you would fit. 8,500 tickets on the floor, but certainly would give that. And that, and that has been at the heart of this debate about the Silver Dome was what is the true honest capacity of this stadium that we went under the assumption of what, what the size was. And this is, this is the white whale of attendance. And, and, and just to catch people up. So Dave Meltzer has reported that it's 78,000. That's how many people were in the stadium. I believe his, his paid number. I was searching around for it. It was, was on the building headcount from. The local promoter, Zane Bresloff, like this is right. not just like. And and Dave, I believe, has reported that he, the paid attendance is something like 74,000. So anyway, I, I asked Dave about this like a year ago, and he told me that he believed that, in fact, the stadium capacity was exaggerated. So that that's sort of what motivated me to to do this math. And, and there's obviously potential problems here in terms of maybe the seating capacity, maybe the seating map is not drawn to scale. It seems like it's a CAD drawing, though, so so I kind of think it is, but but who knows? Um, and I don't think there were any renovations between twenty between nineteen eighty seven and twenty seventeen that would drastically change the capacity. Um, I've searched and I haven't found anything like that. If any anybody's aware of any of this, let me know. Um, but this would lend credibility to to the notion that maybe it, what really wasn't eighty thousand uh, eighty thousand in, instead of uh, seventy thousand, um, but but yeah, uh, John has left. He's he's down and trying to reconnect. So anyway, I did all that, and, uh, and if you add the people on the floor, then you get up to what? 
what did I get? About 75. So maybe you count, I didn't consider standing room. Bix talked about standing room. Maybe there's thousands in standing room. Maybe it does up to just about 78,000. Um, so yeah, that's, and I went and looked at Raymond James Stadium because we have the audits from Raymond James Stadium from WrestleMania in 2021. And I was trying to look at like, are there NFL stadiums that are just exaggerating their capacity across the board? And, and long story short, it, Raymond James Stadium looks to be accurate based on what I see in the ticket audit, based on what they say is their official capacity of 65,000. Um, but yeah, I've, uh, I've, I've, I, I, I talked to Bix about it. He, he still, you know, uh, you know, presents the notion that, Hey, look, the Silverdome website after it was done uh, being the home of the lions was still being, they were still renting it out and they were showing on their official website in well into the two thousands that mm-hmm. the capacity was 83,000 and change. So I'm uh, I'm in an epistemological crisis here, but uh, I, I am more swayed that maybe it really was 78,000. Well, I'm also interested to see number one, that as much as the, the focus on all in is if there's one thing I have a greater appreciation for, it's how big that WrestleMania card was at AT&T Stadium a few years ago that I mean, we compare like how big this all-in event is. And I feel in 2016, like it was, you know, certainly WWE is not some startup company that's doing this four years in, but like that's an incredible number that they did and an incredible gate figure that they did in 2016 that I, I think we just associated like the, these levels with WWE. But the fact is that um, it's it's incredible what they, what they drew to AT&T Stadium. And I guess they have the option that if they wanted to uh, get that out there, like their internal data, like if their uh, paid number is above uh, AEW, um, they they could do so. Although I'm not expecting WWE to uh, respond to any any touting of AEW success. My my email address is Brandon at WrestleNomics.com. If anybody wants to send me any legitimate ticket audits, I'm I'm glad to have them and and look them over. Yes. Uh, WWE can also text uh, Brandon Thurston as well. Yes. but yeah, it's in, in terms of a single day event, unless they go back to making WrestleMania a single day event, I don't think that WrestleMania 32 number is ever going to be beat anytime soon in terms of, of a single day event. And and with inflation, that's an enormous number that they did. In today's money, it's like $22 million. A huge, huge figure. Triple H and Roman Reigns. Yeah. And, and, and in a gate, what, what's all in going to do? They're, I think... Tony has said 8.5 million is the latest. So it's going to get higher than that. Nine, maybe 10, 11. It's even at at that number. I don't think it's in the top 10. Um, SummerSlam W said did 8.5 million. So that's probably with fees. It's still, still over $8 million of a live gate for SummerSlam at Ford field this year. Mm -hmm. So it'll probably edge that out. And I think maybe it already has. I'm curious to see what, what their merchandise figure is for the for yeah. the show as well. Will they bring enough merchandise? Will, will Pro Wrestling Tees be supplying the merchandise in London? Listen, I'm sure it's an area of their business that they're going to come out of this show and they're going to be like, it's like, it was astounding to me being at Ford Field last weekend and just like, it's not a surprise, but just this machine that operates of WWE. Like I was out there during the day and they had like the whole street cordoned off. It's like you... If you wanted WWE merchandise, boy, were they going to make it as accessible as possible for you. And these lines were ran. And they had a shop set up in, in downtown Detroit as well. That With a were, line that was going yeah. around blocks, like hours that, before that, the show. Yeah. 
it was gigantic. I thought this was the line from Ford Field. I'm like, is this the line for the stadium <laughs> five blocks away? Like I was like, no, it's, away. it's for the opportunity to get into a store to give yeah. WWE more money. It's like, it's unbelievable. I mean, I, I got in there when there was no line. I had no trouble getting in. But 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 I did like, you know, go have breakfast and be like, wow, there's a line out here. Maybe we'll stop by later when it's not so busy. I was there like four hours before SummerSlam started, and it was a gigantic line. Like it was wrapped around uh, the block uh, just to get in there. Um, but yeah, it's like certainly you would look at it, and this has the opportunity to be just like I could not imagine what the merchandise figure would be. But you know, we we have seen examples where this is uh, an area that AEW has been criticized over of just the infrastructure. This is a massive undertaking uh, for them, but um, it's. It's a huge, huge opportunity on many, many financial fronts. Yeah. So to, to make a statement here. So in terms of attendance, fans in the building, not including ushers and ticket tickets and things of that nature, but people who are actually in the building to watch the show, I think the record, I guess it just comes down, down to suites, I guess. And I don't know that the number we're looking at here, uh, for Wembley is including suites. So let's say, I guess it's 80,000 that they have to cross to be the most attended wrestling event in modern history. That's not directed by the government. <laughs> um, right. Cause nothing else would, would be ahead of that. Once they're well ahead of 80,000, I guess that's the biggest ever in terms of attendance, in terms of paid attendance, then about 80,000 for, for WrestleMania 32 as well. Some, something in that neighborhood. So when, if they're well over 80,000, maybe it is the biggest ever in terms of tickets sold. About at about seventy four right now. Does AEW get to count all the heartbeats? Is that fair game? Not if I'm counting. Brandon Thurston ain't letting you get away just because you have a heartbeat. Okay, you better have a paid ticket in your hand or digitally. Yeah. Yes. Um, well, we will uh, we will be talking about all in more uh, next week. No no guest yet for next week, but we will uh, we will discuss uh, off air as we uh, we go in. Do you, do you realize I that from the post wrestling uh, world we have. Four representatives that will be at All In in various capacities. We have uh, Braden Harrington, Davey Portman, Neil Flanagan, and I have learned Andrew Thompson is really? going over to England. Wow. Yes, yes, he is going to wow, that's awesome. All In as well. So, did, did, what's what's the the uh, the travel budget that, that you guys give Davey Portman? He's at every show. I mean, in like when if I'm at a show, he's at a show. Get, Davey is going on his on his own with Braden. This is their um, just kidding. Davey's yeah, got like, his hookups. I don't know if there's been a wrestling show. I mean, if I think about it, I don't know if there's been a wrestling show that I, in the last couple of years that I've been to that he hasn't also been at. Really? I think he, so because he was like there in Buffalo and there in Rochester. <laughs> and yeah, I think he was at the Slam, right? And he yeah, was at Forbidden Door. <laughs> I don't know if he's coming back from England. Like he's he says he's going for three weeks. I don't know if I'll ever see him again. To be honest, he he just might might just stay there um, and be a uh, you know. Just taken up by the UK wrestling scene. All right. Let's talk. Uh, we'll, we'll wrap up with uh, just some some ratings notes from the last couple of days. Uh, going back to Friday, SmackDown was down to 2,097,000 viewers and a 0.55 in the demo. But wait a minute. The overnights, Brandon. Yeah. Like 2.6 million. What what happened? Uh, NFL preseason happened as it does every year. Uh, and NFL preseason. So what happened with, with SmackDown is, and this will happen this coming Friday and the Friday after that, which will be the entirety of the preseason uh, preemptions. So uh, in some markets, 
the NFL preseason game for that market will air on the Fox affiliate instead of SmackDown. So, so SmackDown will air either later in the night on the same network or will air on like a sister network that, that is affiliated with the Fox network. Um, all of that should be included here unless there were some mistakes by Fox or Nielsen. All of that, all that preemption viewership should be included with the normal viewership. So yeah, it's, uh, it's just, I, I went and looked back at last year and it went down by about the same rate week, to, you know, when I do the four week comparison. So this is not that alarming, I think. But it is on the low end for what SmackDown has been doing lately for sure. This Friday is a pretty big show. They have over 13,500 tickets out for Toronto with Edge versus Sheamus oh, advertised right for the show. So that's, mm-hmm. that's a, that's got to be one of their biggest televised. Uh, attendance yeah. figures of the year. I mean, that's, yeah. that's a gigantic number they have for, uh, Toronto. And yeah, the, the big segment on SmackDown was hail to the chief and the yes. 18 to 49 audience, they hailed to the chief. Look at that. Huge. A uh, 24% increase from the prior quarter in 18 to 49, 15% jump in overall viewership. So, I mean, for all the negativity coming off of that finish at SummerSlam, like this is still a red hot story, uh, for, for the company as they, uh, move forward. If the bloodline stuff has jumped the shark, I mean, this quarter hour is not supportive of that. This it segment just from, jumped. It it, right, it went from a 0.52 P1849 rating in the prior quarter, 0.52 to a 0.65, I mean, a, a 24% increase, which is, I looked at the big spreadsheet of all the, the quarter to quarter changes. This is like among the, for SmackDown, I think it's among the top five of, you know, of the last two years or so. Huge. Collision on Saturday night, not going against SummerSlam, uh, was up 10% in viewers and 36% in the 18 to 49 demo, doing a 476,000 and a 0.17, uh, with the show featuring CM Punk and FTR challenging the House of Black for the AEW Trios championships. And then, uh, I would have been curious what the overrun would have done if they just kept the cameras rolling for CM Punk's post show address of the crowd. They should really do that. I mean, that's apparently where all the, the, the consequential stuff happens. Do you, uh, I, I am purposely avoiding uh, the, the CM Punk uh, drama discussion, but do you see that having any no impact? Idea. No idea what you're talking about. I haven't heard of any of that stuff. Oh, you just nothing. He, he went to, he went to go buy a CM Punk action I mean, figure I, and all he could find yeah. were hangman ones. Um, That's not, I saw you, John, John, John Cena has confirmed that there is at his local target, a hangman figure that is on the rack, warming it up. Okay, the peg warmer. Um, do you do you see that having any any numerical effect on AEW of seeing will this be addressed on television? Is this a story that has any impact? I, I think there will be none. Um, but do you see any positive or negative from this in terms of a uh, re- response from the audience of that being the key talking point coming out of the weekend? Not really. I mean, it's it's more about a you know a continuation. And a, and a pattern that, you know, tells me there's there's not great leadership com- coming from Tony in terms of, you know, not diffusing this stuff. But, yeah, I don't see it as a as it on, on its own and, and in the weeks to come, some big reaction on television. Are we going to get back to back Tony Khan conference calls over the next two weeks? It's a good question. We'll see if he's going to get back to backs for the two. And any other significant like the collision number i mean it was it was not great it was not a it was on the lower end of collision numbers it was up from SummerSlam, but i mean that was i mean 
clearly uh, SummerSlam had a big, big effect on the collision number. It, w- it was not the bounce back that I affected, uh, expected, especially considering that th- it was a uh, semi-big main event that you had of, you know, again, it's Punk, it's FTR. Um, it's not as though, again, you're you're going into this Saturday and we will see, like, this is essentially your, I guess, second to last collision because next week will be, a collision tape show that they will have. So this is the second time we'll, we'll see what, what a taped edition of collision uh, has after the Hamilton show. That was, taped. if you're looking for excuses, there was NFL preseason on the NFL mm-hmm. network. And I imagine on if affiliates too in network, but yeah. Welcome to the fall season. This is what you're going to be looking at. Once it's, it's only going to get worse games take over. Like this yeah. is where collision is going to be um, getting into the more significant competition. Once we yeah get fully into like college season and, Again, it's once a month, like where, how much is a, does a payback take out of collision versus a SummerSlam and, um, as well, the like big UFC shows. They're, they're up against another pay per view, uh, set of prelims this weekend as well for the card in Boston. And then the last one is Raw from Monday night. They did a million seven hundred and fifty seven thousand viewers and a point five five in the 18 to 49 demo. And this was a headline by Cody Rhodes against Finn Balor and the big rematch between Becky Lynch and Trish Stratus that ended in a double count out, but number one for the night, uh, once again on cable. Yes. Beating everything on broadcast too, I believe. Um, yeah, it's a, a normal rating. Yeah. There was, uh, you know, great, great rank, but not great competition either. And on the Canadian side, it's worth noting that this past Friday's SmackDown and Monday's raw were both the most watched editions of those shows since, uh, the shows following WrestleMania. So they did very well in Canada you would think that extends to SmackDown uh, this week with a big match from Toronto and you have Edge in probably a, you know, multi-segment match uh, with, with Sheamus as well. But they did, like for, for context, uh, SmackDown did 242,000 viewers on Friday and Raw did 314,000 viewers. They were the number one sports program on Monday night, although there was no Toronto Blue Jays game, which typically always beats them. Um, but they were number one on Monday night. So there you have it. The latest and greatest from television ratings, news, and notes. And Brandon, if you don't have anything else, I think everyone is now up to speed on the pro wrestling industry. And they are as confused as ever about WrestleMania 3. But um, I give you all the credit in the world for uh, your, your deep dive and finding your 2017 template to extrapolate a real stadium. If, if this thing had not been imploded, I think I'd go on a road trip to Pontiac and just ask to go in and I'd just go seat by seat. Just yeah. put a sticker on each one and count. And right. Just work backwards. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't think I have the seating map thing. Oh yeah, there. I, I did take. Uh, I, I downloaded a, a, a very expensive uh, computer aided drawing program called Microsoft PowerPoint to do this. So I'm. I'm not like. I'm just trying to find out what it is. I'm not saying this is you know, necessarily definitive. And I did. I did, I did send out the tweet the, earlier today. If anybody has ever heard of. You know any, and I need news articles here, not just an anecdote, but like any news articles of disputes about what the capacity of any of the NFL stadiums are. Is that a normal thing? As as Dave said, it was at least at the time, maybe the eighties and nineties. Maybe it was. I'm, I'm looking for for evidence of that. Um, and I did break out a protractor for this. I was doing. I had to revisit. I was my, curious my, the protractor if this was your edition or if this came uh, on the. Oh template. no. I had I had to revisit like my middle school geometry. I was doing the area of rectangles and triangles. I had to split up the irregular shapes into various combinations of, of rectangles and triangles. So I can, if anybody needs a tutor for uh, their their you know middle school 
uh, geometry. I, I know some area formulas very well right now. Are you prepared for the answers that you are seeking, Brandon, in that could the revelation that all these stadiums and arenas that you track, that there is like a 10% inflation of the real number of seats and all of the, the backlog. Well, I looked at the, well, I looked at the Raymond James stadium capacity and that looks to be consistent with what they say the official capacity is. Um, I could see it being something. The that, question that is how many the, Tokyo domes are out there? These, you know, 70,000 attendances yeah. that turned out to be um, not quite 70,000. And this, this is why we need ticket audits and we need public records requests so that we have, you know, actual records to back this stuff up. And, and it's not just, you know, yeah, I, I was told on background, this is what the number is. So there you have it. I, I'm now in favor of site fees because you know what? That, that puts you at the mercy <laughs> well, of transparency. Site fee is, is about the local economy, not necessarily. It's not always going to be the case that when there's a site fee, it's going to be a government operated venue, right? It but a greater be. probability, I would say, of having access to third parties that might be able to assist in the. I, I send records, out, records requests to the city of Los Angeles, to Englewood, to the county, got nothing back. Well, you might have promoted yourself to the do not contact list for a lot of these places. So if I have to come up and and uh, sneak my way in, I will do so to help you, Brandon. We'll get to okay. the bottom of all of this. Okay? okay. Vix and Span has probably been banned from all these places too. So, I mean, I might I might be untouched at this point. So we will okay. we'll see. If, if, if I don't hear back from Detroit, I'll let you know. Okay. That's going to wrap up the show. But uh, thanks to everyone uh, for joining us. Hey, I want to give out um, – my latest good friend of the show, Mike Murray, uh, got me a gift. And this is going to be my next, my summer reading continues as I have procured The Way to Live by George Hackenschmidt. Wow. This is a 1908 uh, a publication about how George Hackenschmidt, um, his his workout routine, and it's mixed in here with uh, various history. So there you go. Have you ever I'm read gonna... the Farmer Burns, uh, like how to wrestle book? No, I haven't, but I, I would yeah. love to. Uh, I, just... I have it in like an ebook version. It's it's. I would, I would love to read it. It's uh, fascinating. Uh, you can have your DDP yoga. I, I want The Way to Live by George Hackenschmidt. Okay. I will live yes. the way George Hackenschmidt did in 1908. Uh, but what is coming up in the, uh, what, what do you guys have up be, beyond uh, the regular show on Sunday that you have? You also did the latest AEW oh, yes. key performance indicators with uh, Josh Nason. What can we expect so, on, on that show? Recorded that yesterday with Josh Nason. Josh Nason. That's coming out on Josh Nason's Punch Out. That's part of the Observer F4W site. So look for that coming out soon. Um, and the usual stuff at patreon.com slash WrestleNomics, including every Sunday, WrestleNomics Radio, TV ratings reports, got quarter hour reports, and thing, all, all, all sorts of stuff, things of that nature. All right. You can check out all of that. Uh, tonight, it is Awaiting and Kate from Montreal on Rewind to Dynamite. Um, I've tapped out after the G1. I need to, uh, I need to recharge. Uh, but we will be, uh, back later this week on Friday. No, Thursday. If you are a member at postwrestlingcafe.com, Waiting and I will be presenting our latest edition of talk. And it's the car cast edition, uh, as we will talk about life, the struggle. All of it will be uh, covered at uh, postwrestlingcafe.com. And we're back next week heading into All In. Uh, so tune in for that. And then uh, and then Brandon's on the road. He is hitting anywhere and everywhere. He's off to Chicago. He's off to Pittsburgh. Not going to London, though. No, no. You got to no, gotta draw the line somewhere. Yes, yeah. but I, I am going to Chicago and Pittsburgh the same weekend, yes. There is, as much as I'm sure it's going to be an incredible atmosphere there live, um, that amount of people and the insanity that would ensue, I'm more than happy to be watching this show 
from this exact seat wow. as opposed it, to it that. would be good to be there to try to individually count every person uh in in the stadium to be an eyewitness there well maybe maybe we can invest in a in a in a clicker for Davey portman and he can he can do a numerical account as so what we do we would station you know one reporter at each gate and try to manually count every person wow well, okay. We're, we got to get ahead of this one. Okay. We got to imagine what would we, how would we be preparing if this was, uh, March, March 25th, 1987? And in a couple of days, um, all these people were, would be heading to the Silver Dome. How would we best, uh, be prepared for, for, for if you were to know what was to come over the next 35 years? Well, records requests in real time might have been possible. I mean, like, uh, I, I don't know if the Silver Dome was government operated, but it, but certainly by the end it was. Um, but maybe a government, uh, a records request would have been, would have, you know, at the time, you know, shortly after the show, would have cleared this all up. Imagine that. If we had uh, Pollock and Thurston with special guest Zane Bresloff uh, joining us uh, on a cassette yes. tape at the time that we would mail out to people and they'd get the show six months later um, on a cassette you know, with, with a grainy microphone. And that, that could have put a. People would have paid for that, that at the time, though. That would have been huge. That, that would have been. Eight traders have been all over it. You know. All right. That's it for us. Go follow him at Brandon Thurston or patreon.com slash WrestleNomics. And that is it for Pollock and Thurston.